Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network at 5 p.m. on Saturdays, Sirius XM Channel 130, and of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we'll be addressing several interesting things on the show today. We have Dr. Timothy Flanagan, an infectious disease expert at Brown University, to talk to us about the next phase of the pandemic that we're all living through. At the bottom of the hour, we'll be joined by former Navy SEAL Congressman Dan Crenshaw of Texas. He'll be talking to us about a recent article he wrote in the Wall Street Journal and sharing some thoughts about Memorial Day and our fallen servicemen and women. But now Maureen Ferguson is joining us to look at a new documentary called AKA Jane Roe, which showcases footage of Norma McCorvey. She's the real Jane Roe at the center of Roe v. Wade. Welcome back, Maureen. Uh, hi there. Great to be with you today. So this week on Hulu, and we are taping this before, it actually opens on May 22nd, a new documentary about Jane Roe. Norma McCorvey was her real name, and she was the woman at the center of that infamous case, Roe v. Wade, which made abortion through all nine months legal in the entire United States. Right. So to briefly review the history there, she was a young woman, 21 years old, a history of all kinds of, she really suffered in her childhood, suffered all kinds of abuse. She was drug and alcohol addicted. She was 21 years old, pregnant with her third child. And she was really used by this ambitious young lawyer, Sarah Weddington, who took her out for beers when she was about five months pregnant, uh, apparently in her words, got her smashed and had her sign this affidavit David, and she therefore became the Jane Roe of Roe versus Wade. But it was all, it was legally based on a lie. She claimed that she had been raped. And of course, abortion has always been justified morally on a lie that the unborn child isn't a real human being. And of course, it's a lie to women that abortion is a solution to your problems. So so the entire Roe versus Wade case is legally based on this lie that she was uh, gang raped, as she claimed at the time. But many people don't even know that Jane Roe, Norma McCorvey, never even had an abortion because she was sort of cast aside pretty quickly by the ambitious young lawyer, Sarah Weddington, who was really just using her as a plaintiff to push abortion rights through the court system. You know, I think that when we watch the documentary, if we watch it, we're going to find uh, someone who had a tremendously tragic life. Norma McCorvey died in 2017. And the stories of her childhood are hair-raising. Really very uh, abused by a cousin, I think, raped when she was just just a child repeatedly, married at 16 to a man who abandoned her when she was pregnant. And then later on, like you say, like you mentioned, used by a pro-abortion movement that wanted uh, some test case that they could take all the way to the Supreme Court. And she really wasn't a great case for them because later on in life, um, she had a conversion experience 
friends uh, through a friendship with an evangelical pastor and she came to Jesus and she understood that she had been used and that the deaths of so many millions of babies in the United States, the legal death through abortion, had sort of been laid at her door through no fault of her own. Right. And so since Roe versus Wade, we've had nearly 50 million abortions. And for for a long time, she was an abortion rights activist, but she was never quite accepted by the feminist movement. She didn't quite fit in. And over time, she was working at an abortion clinic and befriended a pro-life activist who was there protesting. And, you know, we don't have firsthand knowledge of any of this, but it appears as if they developed an authentic friendship. And out of that friendship, she had a conversion. She wrote a new book called One by Love, which, you know, we know that it is love that wins people over. So it appears that she had an authentic conversion of heart. And and then she became a pro-life activist for many years. What makes this story very compelling to me, and I think to you also, Maureen, is that she was used as a poster child for abortion. But the fact is, she is in a way a poster child because abortion presents a false solution to the problem of girls and women being exploited and ill-used by men, but also by women, by the lack of care for them when they're growing up, by the lack of love of the society that presents, you know, this culture of sexual liberation and tells women that they're going to be happy and they're going to flourishing lives. And at the end, what they have is sadness and abortion. So she is in a way a poster child for the sort of the ill-conceived thought that abortion could be a solution to all this sadness. That's exactly right. She's a poster child, but not in the way the abortion rights movement wanted to make her. She's really an example of someone who had a real hole in her heart and was seeking, and she never ended up having an abortion herself, thank God. But but she really suffered in her life. And, you know, we pray God rest her soul. You watched the trailer. Did anything else strike you in the trailer, Maureen? Right. So I haven't seen the documentary yet, but just watching the trailer, honestly, it made me think, you know, I wonder if she's, the trailer has a different focus, it seems. Apparently, she had a long life of struggle with same-sex attraction as well as her other struggles. Just watching the trailer, it made me wonder, you know, I wonder if she's being used as a pawn yet again, you know, in another political debate is what it, that's how it struck me. That's how the trailer struck me. We'll see when we watch the full documentary, but. um, Well, I hope that's not true. She deserves, uh, she deserves a, I hope she's resting in peace now and in the love of, in the love of God and in his mercy. And she deserves, I'm sure from everyone, all our prayers. So thank you, Maureen, for sh- sure. for joining me today to talk about this uh, documentary on Jane Roe of Roe v. Wade. Joining us now is Dr. Timothy Flanagan, who was with us before and was very helpful and made us feel so much better about this coronavirus thing. So we've asked him to come on again. He is an infectious disease expert at Brown University, and he's also a Catholic deacon. Also joining us is my friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Andrea picciotti Bear. Welcome, Dr. Flanagan. Thanks so much. Great to be on your show again. Last time we spoke, it was right at the beginning of the pandemic, or at least the moment when the pandemic was affecting most states. We were talking about social distancing and hand washing. And then a little after that, we all found ourselves locked into our homes with no social contact and in this crazy lockdown position. Now, fast forward a little more, depending on where our listeners live, we are going to the next level where we are coming out of our lockdown positions. So now we're going into this next step and there's a lot of confusion out there. We're getting a lot of mixed messages about how to do this, what's safe, what's not safe, how to apply all these things now that we think we know about coronavirus. 
virus. So we wanted to get your take on that. Yes, I'm so happy that we are opening up. Epidemics and viral respiratory epidemics are extraordinarily dynamic. They go up and down, they undulate. Of course, we like to think, oh, it's going up because we did this, or it's going down because we did this. And I think some of that is true, but these are very dynamic processes. So our lockdown, when it occurred, I think was important, but now we've seen significant improvements. So the rate of hospitalizations is way down, which is so important. Even in many of our hard hit states, the number of new tests is down very significantly. The medical system is coping. So that is extraordinarily encouraging and it's time for us to get out and about. Now, once you get out and about, this can be done safely. The most important thing is our social distancing and good hand hygiene. Now, there's a lot of controversy about masks. I like to say, are you in a mask state or a non-mask state? Because some states are have masks mandated mm-hmm. out in public. Other states just say no, only if you can't social distance and you're more, you're closer than six feet, then wear masks. Now, masks do help because it protects other people. And also, you just don't touch your nose and your face as much. But the more important than masks is even that is the social distancing and good hand washing. And we can all play a huge role in this. So I'm very encouraged. We're all different. You know, before this, you know, we hugged and we kissed because that's good. And, and that's so important. But now we can't do that. And that's going to make an enormous difference. But we are doing much, much, much better. The numbers don't lie. It's really very, very encouraging. Doctor, what is a what is the correct social distance? Can I have a dinner party and, and have people sitting three feet from each other? Well, I like to say it's either six feet or a good arm's length. So, you know, it, it, all this varies. Of course, we've, we do know there's a very good science related to the spread of droplets. So, for example, if you're an opera singer, you actually spread droplets more than six feet. You know, if you're sing- singing an aria, then those droplets are going to be flying out there. When you sneeze, they fly out there. If you talk quietly, you don't get much spread at all. So this is not exact. And there are all sorts of YouTube videos showing droplets spreading in this and that. In general, we use six feet. And I always like to go to the CDC website. CDC website is, is good common sense information that I believe you can trust. Doctor, I was interested in hearing a little bit of your thoughts on what we're all thinking could be a, a magic or a miracle solution to all of this and, and and people are putting their hopes in a vaccine and there's a fast track for vaccines and, and there's lots of questions that I have on whether that's going to be effective, how many people are going to have access to a vaccine, whether there's proper peer review. What do you think, uh, how should we hold our hopes out for a vaccine? What should What should the regular person on the street be thinking about? So I am optimistic that we will have a vaccine. I do believe that there is natural immunity to this because there's natural immunity to other similar respiratory viral infections, though there are a lot of questions out there. So when we look at vaccine development before the coronavirus pandemic, we wanted a vaccine that had absolutely zero side effects when given to 100 million people or as close to that as possible. Hmm. Well, you know, we're in a different situation now. This is a pretty nasty bug. 
When you get it, it can be pretty terrible. Even if you just get the flu-like illness, you're down and out for one, two, three weeks. And if you get the pneumonia, it can be doubly serious. So this is nothing to fool around with. I think we will accept an imperfect vaccine that could be rolled out in the fall. That's very optimistic. It would be quite incredible. And they'd probably start with folks that are going to be exposed at a higher level. So that would be first responders, healthcare workers, might include teachers, and then you'd probably think about uh, nursing home residents and so forth. And the first vaccine may not be perfect. I'm not a, a vaccinologist, and I have no, I'm not a, a leader in this area. But personally, I'd be very happy with a imperfect vaccine that was rolled out initially, particularly among targeted populations. And then as the science developed and we got better and better and better vaccines, then that would be replaced. And we did this with polio. I mean, remember what polio was like during the summer? Mm -hmm. Your kid would go to the pool and all of a sudden they'd be paralyzed. And so we had the first vaccine was the Salk vaccine, which was a killed vaccine. It had um, issues related to it. Then it moved to the Sabine vaccine. And polio vaccinology has improved. So it's not the perfect vaccine or nothing. I think we have, uh, we'll have a lot of candidate vaccines, and I think uh, some of them, I'm optimistic, but but I tend to be an optimistic guy, so who knows? So I think the earliest would be October, November, December, and the latest would be next spring. A lot of people think that widespread rollout of vaccine might take place after Christmas. We'll see. But correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Flanagan, but we're not waiting for a vaccine to reemerge into the world, right? I mean, if we are not, we don't have a comorbidity, uh, we're not otherwise immune compromised, we do not need to wait for a vaccine or herd immunity to start rejoining and reactivating our lives. That is 100% correct. You are dead on. The most important thing you can do is be thoughtful about touching other people and then not using good hand hygiene and touching your mouth and your nose. And that's how the virus gets in. It doesn't jump through the air. But I have to tell you, you know, everybody has different levels of fear and, and anxiety. I have a family member who literally has not left their townhouse for seven weeks. Wow. And I'm not sure they will. And to me, that is an exceptionally scary thought. But that is where they're at. You have to acknowledge it and respect it. I'm very, very concerned. I think it has other health issues which are very difficult and will cause other problems. So I'm encouraging people to get out and about in a safe way. I think that's really an important thing. Doctor, I'm a lot like you and as far as being a cheery optimist. Um, and I'm also super proactive. And as the mom of many, I'm thinking um, not only am uh, my kids have masks and I've taught them about distancing, what else can I do in my home to build up the immunity and the defenses, natural defenses of my children, of me, um, and what can I pass on to my friends' tips, whether it's supplements, what things do you think are, are it can't hurt and it could do some good? One which everybody knows about but is super important is smoking. So smoking not only hurts your lungs, but it also causes dysfunction of the immune system. So smoking is a big-time negative no-go zone. Second is general health and resiliency, and that includes things like sleep. I can't tell you how many people skip a meal, then they get hypoglycemic, they get lightheaded, they get a headache. So good eating habits. And then the third thing is 
exercise, I, I'll tell you my magic prescription is plain old walking and how important that is to be out and about and walking. And that can impact the immune dysfunction or even the cytokine storm that we see with bad coronavirus, I think can be modulated by individuals that are able to get out and about. It certainly prevents blood clots, which we know can occur much more frequently. So good regular exercise is key. That's Dr. Timothy Flanagan from Brown University. He's an infectious disease expert and a Catholic deacon, and this is Conversations with Consequences. Doctor, I have a daughter in England, and she keeps emailing me and texting me and calling me to take vitamin D. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us us if that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you live in England, it's cloudy 90% of the time and they tend to be quite deficient in vitamin d but if you live in florida and you get outside then you get a lot of good sunlight so it's not so much of a problem besides the sun is just so great for our hearts and our souls so yes those living in england probably should be taking a little more vitamin d but if you get a lot of good direct sunlight you may not need it quite so much do you believe in that idea that it's a protective of infection for coronavirus you know there are a lot of trace minerals and vitamins that are very important. For example, zinc. Zinc is good for general infections and other vitamins as well, uh, the whole B vitamin complex. Mm -hmm. But my approach is to eat a a highly varied diet with lots of fruits and vegetables and less processed foods. If you do that, you probably don't need to take a lot of uh, processed supplements. Um, Those are more natural supplements. But if folks feel comfortable and want to augment their diet with a little vitamin C, vitamin B, vitamin D, and zinc. Um, That sounds great. Just do it in moderation. Doctor, um, America is thriving with small businesses. We're just bubbling out, and it's one of the strengths of our economy and, and really shows great ingenuity and entrepreneurship. My brother is an owner of a small business in Chicago, and he was we were chatting um, on Sunday, it was his birthday, and he was telling me about the steps he's taking to keep his workplace safe for his beloved family, for his employees, and it went beyond um, just the standards that were being sent out by, by the federal government, whether it was C. CDC guidelines or OSHA guidelines, what tips would you give small business owners, people that are going to be starting up as the economies open up again, um, to, to be able to keep their workplaces a safe place for everyone and if they have clients coming in for, for people who are going to be visiting them? Yeah, great question. Um, there's Some states have a dynamic which is which is poisonous, where it's government against small business. And yet small business is the lifeblood of our communities, and they need to thrive for us to thrive. So there are a number of things that can be done. I mean, first off is setting a good example. So if the small business owner is obviously wearing a mask and using good hand sanitizers, then that's what everybody will be doing. Uh, The second is if employees are ill, they need to stay at home, and that requires a flexible policy, and everybody needs to be flexible and kind and considerate in the middle of that. Third is you make space changes. So, for example, if you don't want somebody kind of leaning over, you know, hovering over you, you put a table in between where you normally would interact with a customer. And the table can have a little flower or this and that or cards on it, whatever you want. But it just creates that little bit of distance that becomes normalized. And that becomes very, very helpful. 
Some people are very big into gloves, and the CDC does not routinely recommend gloves. The reason why is if you just put on a pair of gloves and then you do everything the way you normally would, and most people don't really wash their hands with gloves because they're wearing gloves. They don't wash their hands much, but you're touching tons of stuff. It doesn't really protect or break the cycle of transmission. So occasionally use gloves. I mean, they'll tell you on the website, CDC, but they don't generally recommend everybody wears gloves all the time outside and about. It's more the hand hygiene that counts. But those little structural things, I'm thrilled to see businesses get creative, get out there and say, we're not going to shrink into our shell. We're going to get out there and be creative. We're going to help serve our customers. And this is healthy and beautiful. Doctor, you're, a, you're an epidemiologist, right? You're not just an infectious disease specialist? Primarily infectious disease. I'm primarily a clinician. I've just worked with the HIV and AIDS epidemic, the hepatitis C epidemic, the Ebola epidemic, and now corona, coronavirus. So I, I'm used to the world of, of epidemics, but now I'm primarily an, just an infectious disease clinician and teacher. I bring it up because... Uh, Hard on the heels of the coronavirus epidemic, we're going to have other epidemics related to the shutdown uh, that that our entire global economy <laughs> uh, enjoyed for so many weeks and is enjoying in many parts, uh, continu- continues to enjoy. Uh, those are epidemics of uh, despair, deaths of despair, uh, ep- epidemics of drug abuse. How do you think that uh, those things play out when we're talking about whether how, how safe we can be going out and avoiding coronavirus and these other epidemics? I am so worried about these other epidemics. You know, I suicide rates in this country have been at an all-time high. Our overdose epidemic, our substance abuse epidemic, an epidemic of loneliness and isolationism. And of course, it's exacerbated by the web where people don't have a chance to look eye to eye. And when I see all these people that are, are retracting into their shell and don't want to get out or can't get out or are fearful and and anxious and you know um jesus said to us be not afraid pope john paul ii said go out into the deep Mm -hmm. so this is what's really required of us that's the key i was uh you know one population that we're particularly uh concerned about is a population that we love very much and that's our our older folks um grandmas and grandpas and thinking about the spread of the virus in nursing homes and the containment of nursing homes so people are limited in their ability to visit um just earlier this week, the federal government issued some guidelines for nursing homes reopening, uh, and it's definitely going to be a, a slower process. Um, but one of my boys is working in a nursing home and uh, isn't taking the summer off to play video games, but is actually there caring for folks. What guidance can you give uh, to our listeners that may be in nursing homes right now, people that are supporting them, and people whose relatives are in nursing homes as far as uh, kind of expectations and support? First off is that your son and other nursing home workers are the true heroes in this epidemic. I've been working in the hospital every day, and that's wonderful, but the hospitals get a lot of resources and credit and support. But the nursing homes often do not. They've, they're often left behind. And God bless your son 
for going into work every day. It is so it's beautiful. It's just He's beautiful. A good boy. He's yeah, a good boy. I'm I mean, it's all the time for him. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Now, the other thing is, I mean, I know an elderly gentleman who has been asked not to leave his room for eight weeks. How mm. difficult and terrible is that? And all his meals are handed in on a paper tray. So we have to realize that our elderly family members and friends are isolated and we need to reach out in any way we can. And we need to, one thing that can help is even if you call them up and pray with them to say, Mm -hmm. hey, you're not alone. You know, the good Lord is with you. Mary is with you. You are not alone. Mm -hmm. Now, even with that being said, people assume, oh, if you're 90 years old and you get coronavirus, well, obviously you're going to die. Well, that is not the case. Your risk of getting severely ill and your risk of dying may be much higher, might even be a hundredfold higher than if you're 35 years old, for example. But still, the majority of 90-year-olds that get coronavirus will be able to fight it all fine. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. So this this assumption that you're going to not be able to recover the immune system doesn't work is wrong. Now, it is true. If you're 90 years old and you have to be hospitalized, that is a very, very difficult very, very difficult situation. But many 90-year-olds will be able to do okay with their immune system, God-given, to fight the infection, even in the nursing home. Dr. Flanagan, we're almost out of time, but I didn't want to uh, stop before I asked you about this. Uh, Another issue that's happening on the other spectrum, the other end of life, the life spectrum, is this uh, autoimmune um, multi-system response uh, that's happening with children who are exposed to coronavirus and then present with these very scary symptoms. Yeah, so the coronavirus has a spike on its surface and it clearly stimulates the immune system in a very strong way. And so there are a number of disorders that we, I think we will see, we certainly already seen Kawasaki syndrome, which is a form of vasculitis that can occur in children, a very serious disease. It is treatable. The numbers are small, thankfully. But we probably will also see Guillain-Barre and other immune sequelae. These are immunological complications down the line. Not in high numbers, but obviously if you're the one that gets sick, very, very serious. So I think we will see it, but I don't think it will be very common. I think it'll be uncommon. And doctor, we also have been treating diseases like this for some time. So there is expertise already in these fields. You got it. You got it. I mean, we, in many ways, we are doing well, but this virus is here to stay. It's going to go up and down. It's going to be an undulating course. We're all concerned about the fall, but I think we're going to be able to cope and the medical profession has developed the capacity which is really really great and people are also being very responsible they are getting out and about our masses are opening thankfully i'm so joyful about it yes but people are but people are doing it with social distancing which is a Mm -hmm. good thing so it can be done safely well thank you so much dr flanagan for joining us your wonderful comforting even tone i think is i know it's very good for us and i'm sure it's very good for our our listeners uh, as we go forward into this next phase of being very brave getting out there going into the deep so thank you doctor. yes thank you next on conversations with consequences we talk with congressman dan crenshaw don't go away stay tuned right here on ewtn radio
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences, the weekly radio show of the Catholic Association, broadcasting every Saturday at 5 p.m. on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm joined by my colleague at the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson. And now we are very happy to welcome Congressman Dan Crenshaw, serving the 2nd Congressional District of Texas. He's also a Navy SEAL with five deployments overseas. It was on his third deployment to Iraq in 2012 that his life changed forever. After serving in Fallujah for over six months, he was struck by an IED blast that left him blind. I'm sure all our listeners have seen his very rakish uh, eye patch, <laughs> which can't be, can't be forgotten once seen. Welcome to our show, Congressman. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So, Congressman Crenshaw, we know how much in demand you are, especially after your fantastic Wall Street Journal piece. But long before that, you were very much in demand. So we're super grateful that you were able to join us today. I know you and I have been able to meet a few times. And just back in February, before everything shut down, we were at a function together. And there were there were all kinds of congressmen there. And my kids were with us. And I know my kids had no interest in meeting anybody there except Congressman Dan Crenshaw. <laughs> they were dying to get a picture with you. So you were so gracious enough to stand with my two teenagers and take a nice picture because all they wanted to do was get a photo with the former Navy SEAL. Anyway, so thank you for joining us. We're going to get to your Wall Street Journal piece in just a minute. But Gracie first wanted to ask you about your recent appearance on Bill Maher's show talking about your book. So yeah. recently, you were on Bill Maher, and I'm sure you know that it blew up the internet, your response to his questions. You started by talking out about your book called Fortitude, American Resilience in an Era of Outrage. Bill Maher was very impressed with you, and he started by praising you for your service in what he called calling out victim culture. But right away, he pivoted really fast to, how can you support someone like President Trump? And you gave such a great answer, so I was hoping you could reproduce it for us here. Well, it's what I usually say. Uh, I don't have to remember that interview. We do so many. But yeah, it, it certainly made the rounds. What I usually say is, is look, we, we don't have to think in such binary terms about this. And I, I can understand that, that people don't like the president's style or a lot of the things he says or, or, or some of his, you know, past uh, character misgivings, you know, let's say. It's fine. You know, I, I don't claim that he's my spiritual guide in any way, but I, but I do have the, the benefit of knowing him on a, on a private level. And, uh, and I didn't say this in the, in the interview, but, but I'll say it here. You know, he, he's very gracious. He, he doesn't, he's not this, he's not this bad person. Uh, mm -hmm. he's, just, he's just not. And, and I think, I think people really want to believe that, um, because, because his style can be crass and he just pick a lot of fights with, with, uh, you know, his, his opponents and, um, you know, it's not my style, but it is his and. I'm able to hold multiple ideas in my head at the same time, such as, you know, uh, deeply, what's really important to me is supporting a governing philosophy and supporting policy. I mean, it's, why, it's why we get into this job in the first place. You know, if, if, I, if I never worked with, with anybody just because I, you know, I thought they were crass or, or whatever, then, well, geez, I mean, you would, you would, you would eliminate quite a lot of possibilities. And, and, the, and, the, and the harsh reality is that he does govern conservatively, that he does govern well. Uh, the administration did do a good job. And, and the next, next part of that interview was, okay, well, wasn't the COVID-19 response a complete disaster? And I pointed out, well, it's just not true. That's, that's not objectively true when you look at the evidence. And there was sort of this narrative being put out that I think we debunked pretty successfully. 
that the administration just deliberately ignored the entire virus and um, and you know people died as a result and it it's just not that's just not true um, objectively speaking and I pointed that out and it was a good interview <laughs> it was and that, that you did do a wonderful job debunking these ideas that he was putting out about the administration's so-called horrible response to COVID uh, you also said something that struck me very strongly you talked about how proud and happy you were when President Obama visited you and other wounded soldiers in the hospital and how you were just proud and happy to be there with your with our your commanding officer why is this hard for liberals to do with President Trump oh geez it, it's hard to say you really got to get inside the minds of, of political opponents and it, it, it's a bit opportunistic and, and like you know listen President Obama speaks very smoothly you know he, he never lashed lashed out the way President Trump did so it, it, again it, it's, it's not surprising that it creates a, a different uh, kind of reaction. I understand that. But my point of bringing up Obama and, and visiting in the hospital was, you know, there's a there's a certain respect that I'm going to have for the presidency, no matter who's in it. And I, I think that's important. And it's, you know, and I think they label President Trump with all of these sort of evil connotations that, that really just aren't true. And again, I have the benefit of, of seeing how he is behind closed doors. And it's, I'm just, I'm just, I'm sorry. Like I, I don't hate him. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. I don't hate him. It's just, it's just not. It's just, he's just not this bad, evil person that, that I think they want him to be. And they've, they've tried so hard over these past few years to create these narratives about him. And and you know, he makes it easy sometimes because he'll 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 speak very candidly. He'll speak in the stream of consciousness times type of way. And if you're looking for opportunity to get somebody, which is what our politics is really about, unfortunately, then it's easy to find those moments where you can kind of take something he says out of context or really dive in. But if you're, if you're being objective and holistic about assessing somebody's character and, and, and more importantly, what they're, what they're doing for the country, the, the, the narratives just don't ring true. And um, I, think, I think a lot of us, and especially your listeners, probably intuitively understand that, that they, they, they certainly don't like the tweets. I don't like, I don't like a lot of it. But but overall, um, it's it's really hard to argue that he's he's not doing a really good job for our country. Um, if you believe in the principles that we believe in, and I certainly do, so I think he's doing a, a, a really good job. Congressman, we we hear exactly what you're saying, and it's one reason we're so thrilled to have you talking with us because we love your style and your tone and the way that you seek the common good, uh, rising way above partisan politics, and it's why your article in the Wall Street Journal uh, really caught our attention, because the whole opening, reopening of America um, has become so politicized, so so strangely politicized. When, when my hu- husband was in Congress, we experienced 9-11, his first year in office, and the response, the national response, the congressional response, everything was so characterized by this very sincere coming to together and uh, fighting together and rebuilding America together. So it's so unfortunate the way that this re- coronavirus has been so polarized. Anyway, so so your article, it's, it's called Why Does Reopening Polarize Us? And I'm sure all of our listeners will uh, look it up. Um, but can you, can you explain to us a little bit how you um, address this topic? 
Yeah, so I'm generally fascinated by the, the psychological divides between the right and the left. Um, you, know, you mentioned my book earlier, and I'll give it another plug here, Fortitude. It's, um, it's not a very political book, but it is a cultural book, and I bring up a lot of psychology in that book because I think it's useful um, as, as a way to think about why we're divided. It's also useful to think about psychology in the sense of, of what it means to build fortitude and mental toughness, which is, which is what my book's about. And um, I kind of reference some of the same things in, in this article. Um, on the psychological front, there, there's a few things that really differentiate the right and the left, and it, and it explains why we feel so different about reopening. One is risk-taking. Now, this is a nuanced point, because what you'll hear from a lot of researchers is, is for years and years and years is that conservatives, conservatism is based in fear, fear from, from external events, fear from, from the unknown, and therefore, if somebody is fearful, they're conservative. Now, that's, that's not a very nice way of talking about conservatives. And it's never really rung true, especially if you're a conservative. You don't you don't feel scared all the time. Mm-hmm. And now now you you do tend to protect um, your, yourself from sort of outside forces, right? And it's why we it's why we protect protect tradition. It's why we want to protect our borders. So liberals are more comfortable with the sort of multiculturalism, whereas conservatives say no, we we, we have a culture, we have a nationality, and we we should protect it. So so that part of it it is true. But when it comes to confronting risk. It's really not true. And you see this, and, and I think a better way to, and what I point out in the article, and I think a better way to assess this is what kind of jobs do conservatives take and what kind of jobs do liberals take? And overwhelmingly, you find that conservatives take much more risky jobs, I mean, physical risk, you know, whether it's in lumber or construction or the military or law enforcement. So it's been no surprise that conservatives are more willing to um, engage in personal responsibility and, and prefer freedom with some risk involved. And I think. And, and so I, I just think the psychologists and the researchers have really gotten it wrong in their assessment, or at least the conclusions over time, even though their data is very interesting. And, and the, in fact, it shows that brain function is, is actually different. Your, your brain lights up differently um, when assessing risk, whether you're a liberal or conservative. I just think that it requires a little bit more nuance to interpret that data afterwards. It, it, it's pretty fascinating. We, we're truly wired differently. We're wired differently in other ways, too, like our morale. And this is really interesting, and I referenced Jonathan Haidt's research on this uh, to make this point. It's also, I reference him constantly throughout my book, too. He's an amazing writer, uh, amazing researcher, and has really, really come up with some really interesting insights on how conservatives and liberals think. And we assess morality differently. So they have five different moral foundations. One is compassion. Uh, one is a sense of fairness. Another is a sense of authority and tradition. Another is a sense of in-group loyalty. And another is purity. And um, we won't go into the details of what all of those things mean, but, but, but here's the punchline. Conservatives tend to value all of those foundations about equally. Um, you know, in, in long surveys is how they assess this. Liberals don't. Liberals really just focus on compassion and fairness. And then they have their own sort of definition of fairness, which actually differs from how a conservative would view fairness. You know, we would view fairness in the sense of a meritocratic proportional fairness. You know, you, you work this hard, you get this much. Uh, liberals tend to view fairness more in terms of, okay, we all have the same thing. All right? This is why there's a deep push towards socialism on the far left. 
And but compassion really drives their reasoning. And, and you see this in comments all the time from from the left. You know, they they want to do what feels good. They want to do what helps people, and they don't really care what that is as long as they can make the case that they're helping people. And so I think when it, as it pertains to the coronavirus, this is why they overemphasize you know the slogan if it saves one life. You know, and it's it. it it basically eliminates their ability to think outside of that one thing. And it's interesting because we don't think about risk in those terms in any, anything else we do. This is, this is kind of the first time in human history where the world is completely locked down to eliminate all risk. Um, and I think we're going to look back on this time and say, well, you know, it was probably justified for a period of time, but not, the, not to the extent that w- to which we did it. And the reason it's happened that way, at least, and, and why the left supports it so much, is because it's really all about the "if it saves one life" narrative. And the last, the last part of how we think, I, I would say, is we view liberty differently. Uh, the liberals are going to be much more comfortable with this notion that um, government is there to literally keep you safe and lock you down if necessary to keep you safe and take more control over your life, over-regulate your life. They're just more comfortable with that, whereas conservatives think that's, think that's a little crazy, <laughs> that we should, uh, we should have the personal responsibility and personal fortitude to, to engage in our own freedom. You make an interesting point after you talk about how liberals talk about if it saves even one life, we can, t- we can tolerate any cost to society. And the point you make is that liberals equate those costs with simple monetary hardship, which can easily be replaced by a government check. And that made a lot of sense to me because when I, when I talk to my liberal friends and family, they say, well, the government will be able to mail a check to people, and in the meantime, we can save those lives. But as a conservative, um, I, I'm very um, I'm, I'm impassioned about the fact that it's so much better to uh, for each person's personal dignity to go out and work and and make that wonderful contribution to society and to one's own dignity than to just receive a check. Right, and there's a moral element to that, and there's a practical economic element to that, and so and I think they're wrong on both. You know, it, I don't think it is morally right to to lock people down for their own good, for their own safety. It's it's not the role of government, and they misunderstand the role of government. They, they're not students of history in this sense. The role of government is to is to protect you from somebody else infringing on your rights. It's it, it's not to protect you from yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we the, the most heated debates occur around policies that are that are basically designed to protect you from yourself and that's you know we we our, our spidey senses go off and say wait a second we, we should have the freedom to, to to be who we want to be it's not the government's job to, to force me into safety it's, this is not a brave new world so I think there's a moral problem with that and then on the practical economic level they're just wrong again it, it's not feasible it's not sustainable for the government to keep spending money in this sort of I mean they, they truly believe in a centralized economy and it's very utopian in its thinking. It's, it's not true. And never in history have, has a government been able to perfectly, uh, you know, keep people whole economically. It just does not work. You know, it's, it's, we, we tried, you know, and, and, we have, and, and we did the best we could with the CARES Act. But to, but to say that you can keep doing that and spend endlessly is, is just fundamentally not true. And it, it's not getting to the people who need it most. The best way for people to, uh, you know, re- return to their prosperity is to let them do it themselves. And we've got to get people back to work. So you mentioned the CARES Act, and I believe you were recently back in Washington uh, because Speaker Pelosi wanted to pass another relief bill, uh, the uh, quote-unquote Heroes Act. And uh, I'm wondering if you want to fill our listeners in on 
the many things that were in this uh, fourth COVID relief bill. Yeah, I mean, this is this this relief bill, or whatever you want to call it, is it, it, it's really a manifestation in legislation of of the mentality that I'm talking about, where it's sort of a justification for keeping people locked down because we're just going to take care of you. But but even if you believe that, I'm not so sure that this piece of legislation even did that. I mean, almost a trillion dollars from that was was just to make uh, state governments. More wealthy. It was just a, it was just a handout to state governments, and and which state governments are those that need it most? Well, it's, it's the blue states that have mismanaged their finances for so long. You know that that's certainly not something we're asking for in Texas, at least not to that extent. I mean, you know, you see us balance our budget, and you see New York and California have are in a ton of debt. So it's really not getting to the people who would need it anyway. And there's just, there's a bunch of other progressive wish lists in there, such as you know changing our election system radically, basically um, um, removing requirements for voter ID. I mean stuff that just really shouldn't have anything to do with uh, the coronavirus. You know they they really worked hard to to uh, not let this crisis go to waste, and and they've said this out loud many times. You know they want to use this as an opportunity to remake America and their vision. They're, they're being very transparent, which is very radical and surprising, but very transparent about their true intentions here. And um, that's, why, that's why it was so divisive and why I know Republicans voted against it. Congressman, um, thank you so much for your time. We wish we had more time today, but we know you need to get going and we would love to have you back another time. But before we close out, we're very mindful that we're um, celebrating Memorial Day and you have such incredible and extensive service overseas, receiving two bronze stars, a purple heart, among other medals. And um, I, I just wonder if you could share with, with us your thoughts this Memorial Day, especially keeping in mind all those who have lost a lot one in, in service of our country. Of course, you know, I, I just remind everybody why Memorial Day exists. It's, it's not just a holiday. It's, it's there to remember um, the men and women that we've lost. And, you know, I've personally lost quite a few. And I think about their families on Memorial Day. I think about uh, the widows of, um, of the teammates that I've lost and how they wake up every day without the person that they thought they were going to spend the rest of their life with. And um, I think that's what people should be thinking about. And, uh, and by all means, celebrate, because uh, I tell you what, the guys that I've lost, they, they don't want you to mourn. They want you to celebrate their life. They don't want to, want to be remembered, and they're, they're proud of what they did. They're not victims, um, and they would, you know, we would sacrifice again if we could. But uh, that's what you should remember on Memorial Day. Do you think, Congressman, that now uh, that all of us have to be very brave as we go out and face the world again after being locked down for all these months, do you think that we can take the example of our brave servicemen and women uh, to inspire us? I hope so. I, I, I hope so. And, you know, one, one thing I talk about in my book is um, hero archetypes and and uh, the whole chapter on it about who you should view as your heroes and who you shouldn't and how our culture has started to uh, elevate the wrong type of heroism and actually elevating victimhood. And uh, it's almost more heroic to see people as victims in this new counterculture, and that's, that's not right. Uh, you, should, you should empower and elevate the people who do sacrifice and who overcome adversity, and you should want to be that person. And um, I think it's a theme that could... Uh, that is that is well that is much needed in, in today's age. Well, that's fabulous, uh, Congressman, and I'm I'm sure all our readers will be 
very eager to buy your book and, and read it because it sounds like it's full of wisdom for, for our current age of outrage. And thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure and an honor, and I hope that you come back again soon. Well, thanks for having me. Great to be with you guys. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. This Sunday is frankly one of the most difficult times for a priest to prepare a homily, especially for a national and international broadcast, because the gospel that will be proclaimed in the church depends on where one lives. Some countries and dioceses have transferred the Solemnity of the Ascension from the 40th day after Easter, which was Thursday, until Sunday. Others have retained the Ascension on the 40th day. So we have two conversations we need to consider and connect today. We'll try to do our best. But insofar as Jesus is our interlocutor in every prayerful conversation with the Gospel, everything is intrinsically coherent. We'll start with the Gospel for the seventh Sunday of Easter, since it happened first in time. In it, we have the awesome privilege not only to eavesdrop on the prayer Jesus made to God the Father on the night he was betrayed, but to enter into that conversation with the Father. Jesus begins by asking the Father to glorify him so that he could in turn glorify the Father. That mutual glory would happen, he says, through his giving eternal life to us. And he defines eternal life as knowing God, Knowing him not in the sense we know our acquaintances or even our friends, but biblically, the way husbands and wives know each other, in a totally committed spousal form. That mutual glory would happen, Jesus continued, by his accomplishing the word work that the Father had given him to do, which was to save the human race through his passion, death, and resurrection. That glory would also happen, he added, by his being glorified in us, the church, through our continuation of his mission. Jesus tells God the Father that while he is coming to the Father, we will remain in the world. So he prays for us. And he prays for four things we see in John 17. First, he prays that we may be one, just as the Father and the Son are one. That way, he says, everyone will know that the Father sent the Son and loves us just like he loves the Son. What an incredible prayer that our communion with each other is meant to resemble the communion in the Blessed Trinity. That's why our prayer and work for church unity are so important for any true disciple of Jesus. Second, Jesus prays that the Father will protect us from the evil one. That's what we ourselves pray at the end of the Our Father, he taught us, that we may be delivered from evil. God the Father does protect us, while at the same time leaving us free, meaning that we have to choose to entrust ourselves to him rather than presumptuously thinking that we can convert with evil with no consequences. Third, Jesus prays that, the God the, that God the Father will make us saints. He asks God the Father to consecrate us in the truth of his word. That word consecrate means sanctify. To be consecrated to God means to become holy as he is holy. Fourth, Jesus prays that the love with which the Father loves the Son may be in us, in Jesus in us. This flows from the first three prayers. 
And it's what happens when we truly are united with God and each other, when we're free from the evil one, when we are becoming holy as God is holy. That conversation between Jesus and the Father is ultimately one of the most consequential conversations that has ever occurred. Jesus wants us to cooperate with his prayer for unity, for protection, for sanctity, and for love. But we see in John 17 that he prays not only for us, but for all those who will believe in him through the word of the apostles and their successor, that all of us might receive those gifts for which he prays. And that takes us to the gospel of the ascension. The gospel we hear in the Solemnity of the Ascension, we focus on Jesus' great commission, the words he gave to the eleven apostles right before he was taken into heaven. Jesus praised the Father in John 17 for having given him authority over all people. And now, 43 days later, he turns and says to the apostles, All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always until the end of time. Jesus was saying that his power and authority in heaven and on earth would be exercised through the church, through the sacraments, beginning with baptism, through the word of God as his teaching was brought to all nations, and through the moral life, through observing all that Christ has commanded leading to a full-time communion of life and love with God with us, who promised to be with us until the end of time. Jesus was sending out the church. He was sending out us to continue his preaching, his sanctifying through the sacraments, his charity, his loving others as he has loved us, his communion, remaining with God and he with us until the end of time. This is the way in which Jesus' prayer for union, protection, sanctification, and love will be brought to fulfillment. The Solemnity of the Ascension is an opportunity for us to re-examine how seriously we take the mission Jesus gave us in trying to bring him to everyone we know. The last thing I want to mention is what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit as he was preparing to ascend. He told the apostles not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, when in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The work of proclaiming the gospel to every creature, of entering into life through the sacraments and the moral life, of growing in holiness, love, and union, is not a work we can accomplish on our own. But God the Father and the Son sends the Holy Spirit to us to bring about that moral miracle. We are now within the church's annual decenarium, or 10 days of prayer in anticipation of the Feast of Pentecost, which we'll celebrate next Sunday. I'd urge everyone listening to be praying each day like the apostles did around Mary, waiting for the outpouring of this divine gift, who will help us glorify God the Father and God the Son, and help us with tongues of fire, proclaim with ardent love that God is with us, saving us, not only during times of pandemic, but in the face of every challenge. So we finish together by praying. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful. Enkindle in us the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and we shall be created. And you shall renew the face of the earth. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy in meeting this crisis that we're all in. And you go with our prayers. 